0: We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 56 and 57, as tonight we study two beautiful chapters. And I'll tell you what, this last section of Isaiah, it's all good, but man, this is really, really cool. We're going to see, in one sense, the gracious right to get right with God. You know, we're going to see, first of all, in Isaiah 56, 1 through 8, it's a word to those who feel far, kind of. We're going to see it's kind of like that. He's going to be talking to individuals that, you know, I'm going to bless you. If you obey God, did you guys know that there is this built-in blessings? I'm not saying that life goes, you know, perfect. All I'm saying is blessings, the goodness, the things that God wants to give you, you will receive. Why? Because you're obedient. But there are those uh, out there. Uh, We're going to read about eunuchs and Gentiles. Maybe they don't feel like God would accept them. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't feel like God would accept you. Or we're going to read and we're going to see tonight that he will. In one sense, the whole two chapters are about God reaching out, God being an evangelist, God just loving on you. You know, I don't know if you guys have that heart, you know, where you go out and you want to share the Lord with people because you love him so much. Well, if you have that heart, uh, that's from God because that's his heart. And so, number one, it's a word for those who feel far. Number two, it's a a way for some who selfishly lead. We're going to see just the terrible example of some leaders who are only in it for what they can get out of it. And so, every leader, they really have to examine their life. Like, why do I do what I do? Am I in it for the paycheck? Am I in it, you know, so I can get like some power thing? No, we have to realize, and we're going to see, even through their mistake, that we're here to serve. And so it's a, it's a word for those who feel far. It's a way for some who selfishly lead. It's a warning to those who lust after idols. And so when we get to that section right there, we're going to see how God is heartbroken, that his wife, that his church is unfaithful to him. And I will say this, you guys, that anything you put before God, anything, anything, you put before God is an idol now, one of the things that we 're going to see unfortunately and tragically that the children of israel uh, were were engaging in after you know they you know just came out of the land of Egypt and God gave them a land is they were engaging in idolatry and it was rooted with sexual immorality and so imagine you guys if there was a religion, so to speak, and it says this religion over here said that you can actually engage in sexual immorality as a part of your worship to God. So we're going to see the connection today and I just want to I want to, I want to encourage you guys especially you men but I'm sure it's applicable to all 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 people. Man, whatever you do, do not engage in lusting after women and looking at images that you should not be looking at in flirting and all that kind of stuff. We have to be holy. Our eyes have to be holy. And we're going to see because what ends up happening is one thing leads to another. Next thing you know, people fall into sexual sin and they don't even realize it. We're going to see it. It's that's idolatry. Anything that we would put before God and sometimes ourself, frequently ourselves Uh, that's idolatry it's adultery and so these are things we'll see the last thing in Isaiah 57 14 through 21 is more of a woo to those who need to return and that's a beautiful thing about you know coming to church service Uh, some of you guys are just right on man you're just like uh, on fire. I mean, you love God and you've been sharing the Lord and you've been in your knees and praying and, and you're in the word and you're not prideful about it and you're just healthy Christians. And so praise God for you. Uh, there are some out there who have felt distant. Maybe you uh, have even back in and you come to a church and, and the last thing in the world that I want to do is to condemn you. What I want most, and I think what God wants to do, is to woo you back to him. You know, you don't have to do a hundred push-ups. You don't have to memorize, you know, a thousand verses. You don't have to get life perfect. All you have to do is come to Jesus. And when you come to Jesus, this is so beautiful. He says, I'll heal your broken heart. And and so that's how it, it ends. It's such a beautiful section. Let's go ahead and start off in uh, Isaiah 56. It's a word to those who feel far. And and, in verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. He's going to deliver them. Now, remember the context here is he's writing to the Jews who were going to be eventually captives in Babylon. And so basically what he's saying is, is don't, don't give in to sin, be holy, be obedient, I'll bless you. And, and so he's saying, I'm about to, to deliver, about, my salvation is about to come. For us, we might even say Jesus is about to come because he is. I, I sense it. I, I don't know. No man knows the day or the hour, but it sure seems like it's near. So he says this, maintain justice, do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who does this, and, and the son of man are the descendants of those who lay hold on it who keeps from defiling or desecrating the Sabbath and and keeps his hand from doing any evil. And, and so he starts off with this promise. It's, it's a beautiful word, you know, to, to keep or, or, or maintain justice. It's the quality of being fair and reasonable. It's the administration of biblical law and authority. And God says, keep that justice, be fair and do he's talking about the hands now do what is right even though you're going to get tested even though you're going to go through trials god says we need to be obedient because deliverance is on the way and so don't give in to sin god says i'm ready to deliver you i'm ready to vindicate you openly i'm on my way and and isaiah here then mentions specifically the sabbath day now in, in in one sense this was a huge thing for israel You know, God's sign to the world that he would not judge them through water. The flood was, his sign was the rainbow. Uh, You know, God's sign to Abraham that he was in the covenant uh, to the men was circumcision. God has these signs. And in one sense, God's sign that Israel was there, you know, God was their God to Israel was the Sabbath day. And it's a beautiful thing. It's coming from Genesis, you know, where God created everything. And on the last day, the seventh day, he rested. And what God gave to the the, the Jews is, you know, take a day, not just sleep, not just, you know, um, don't work hard, although there's there's wisdom in that. There's such a, a beautiful thing to get rest for your body. But he says, worship me, worship me. And so we're going to see more about this. Now, the, when you look at the, the law, the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath law is on there, but it's the only one out of the ten that's not repeated in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in the book of Colossians chapter 2, it says that no one judge you regarding the Sabbath because that's just a shadow of the substance. Because in all reality... Uh, Jesus gives us that rest that the Sabbath symbolizes. So it's just a shadow of the substance. You know, the Bible even says in the book of Romans that some people esteem one day above others, uh, some esteem all days. So I just want to share with you guys, just in case you ever run across somebody, maybe a, a, you know, someone who says, hey, you guys have to worship on Saturday and you have to honor the Sabbath. It's not like that in the New Testament. No, the New Testament that's the one uh, of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated. And, and I do encourage you, get your rest, get your sleep, take care of your temple. But, um, you know, when you're there, understand it's not part of the law for the New Testament, that covenant. But for the Jews, it was. It was huge. It was huge. And so what God is saying to them as he gives them their civil law here in this is you guys, if you want to be blessed, be obedient, you know, um, and honor the Sabbath. Look what he says in verse three. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am a dry tree, like like no descendants, no no future type of thing. For thus says the Lord, "To, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose, notice that it is a choice, choose what pleases me and hold fast or hold tight my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place or or some say a monument and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, like a permanent monument. We're talking about something in heaven that shall not be cut off. So God is talking about blessing, obedience, right? And then he just brings in at this point, the eunuch, And he says, hey, whether you're the the son of a foreigner or maybe you're a eunuch, and we're going to get into both of these things in this section right here, whatever you do, don't think that God would stiff-arm you, that God would ostracize you. You know, sometimes I think, and I've talked to people who think, well, I know God kind of loves everybody, but I just can't, I I don't know about me. You know, and maybe the things that you've done or, or something that's been, you know, poured into you, I don't I'm not a psychologist, but from what I've heard, if someone's always putting you down, always putting you down, always putting you down, it's hard to accept the fact that God lifts you up, that God esteems you, that God loves you. Now, the eunuch and the Gentile, especially in the Old Testament, what we read right here is it says that the Gentiles who place their faith in the Lord should never say they've been excluded from God's people. And we're going to see that. How did the Jews get it wrong? How did they ever come to a place where they thought that if you were a non-Jew, that you were only created to fuel the fires of hell? It had to be something that came from, you know, the enemy, from the flesh. You know, it wasn't from the Bible. What God is saying is, hey, don't let those guys say that. The Gentiles shouldn't say that and even the eunuch. It's interesting. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, it forbade the eunuch from entering the sacred assembly. And so the letter of the law said that the eunuch couldn't enter into the assembly if that man was emasculated, if that man was a eunuch. But what we find by God's grace and the finished work of the cross, the letter of the law is limited. And God wants everyone to know that there's no sin too big, too bad, too bold that the blood of Jesus cannot wash away if, like it says there in verse 4, they, they cling, they hold fast to my covenant. You know, uh, and, I, and I don't know about you guys, but you know, I think of uh, individuals in the Bible that were eunuchs, that were used, that were godly. I believe Daniel was a eunuch. Uh, When you read the scriptures, I mean, he's just there under the leadership of the the head of the eunuchs. Um, Remember the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 27? who's reading from the scroll. I mean, if we went by the letter of the law, you know, what we would find is these guys, and they might have a case in saying that, I don't know if God really loves me. But when you read the entirety of scripture, what you find is that none of us are worthy none of us and you will never go home and be good enough never i don't care how many bible studies you you teach or you know or whatever the good works are that you do or whatever your concept is of like being a godly person i mean we're going to see later that our righteousness the best that we can do is filthy rags before god so don't don't try to base it on your performance. What God is just saying is, hey, a Gentile, eunuch, whoever you are, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you cling to the covenant and you have a heart to choose to do what pleases God, then I want you to know you are welcome, you are blessed, and this is the life that he's, that he's offering us. He says in verse 6, also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him. And I like this, to love the name of the Lord, you know, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and and holds tight my, my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer. Notice, for all nations, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. You know, like, like we read right here, not just the foreigner, the, the son of the foreigner, uh, the eunuch, or some might, think there's no way that they can have a chance. God says, you do. Uh, those who love the name of the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, the, the name would be the tetragrammatron, that that name uh, we believe, I believe it's Yahweh. Now, I, I don't know. We don't know for sure because the name is so holy that they stopped saying it because they didn't want to say it in vain, and they replaced it with different vowel points. And so... Uh, it's not Jehovah, just in case you're wondering, because there is no J sound in the Hebrew. As a matter of fact, what is the Hebrew name for Jesus? Do you guys know? Yeshua, it's with a Y sound. So if you're trying to pronounce it properly, it's, it's probably Yahweh, probably. But um, we know those who love his name. Do you love his name? And then when you read the Bible, you read all the different names of God. And then when you come to the New Testament, what is the name above all names? Jesus, Yeshua. Do you love his name? I mean, it's just a beautiful thing right here, how how God has this promise. And I just, to me, we, we never forget. This is a love relationship. You know, do you love him? Peter, Peter was asked, do, do you love me? It really comes down to that. You know, his holy mountain, he says, if that's you, I'm going to bring you to my house. And then the holy mountain, you know, what we think of Jerusalem, uh, we think of Zion, uh, we think of the millennial kingdom, you know, when we're going to be there with Christ. And, and as we're there, notice he says that we will be joyful. Even then, verse 7, I will bring to my holy mountain... And make them joyful, in my house of prayer. When was the last time, like you were like just full on joyful? You now sometimes we look at Christians and they're more like Eeyore, you know, winning the Pooh. Yeah, I love the Lord, and you know, and I understand. We live in a broken world and broken bodies, and there's a lot of crazy things that are going on. I understand that, you know, but joy is different. Joy is not an external happiness. It is, an inner, it is a peace dancing. And I know, like, for me, I tend to be more of an introvert. So I don't really show my emotions that much. But when I'm in glory, I will. And there is this joy that God will give to us. Notice, in my house of prayer. And I believe that that house of prayer, of course, we're going to see signifies the temple. But in one sense, it signifies the presence of God where his people are gathered together. You know, he he specifically says that this house of prayer would be a place where that eunuch, where that that guy who, who everyone else would have given up on, that person who maybe you in the church look down on, God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take and I'm going to use, I'm going to blow your minds. And the eunuch, the the Gentile. You know, sometimes we unfortunately, we have this crazy concept like God can't save someone from Iran or someone from the Middle East or someone from Syria or whatever. You know, that's crazy. God says, no, I love the whole wide world and whoever wants to to be saved can, can be saved. And I will accept their burnt offerings, God says, and their sacrifices. You know, and a burnt offering is when you just give it all to God. And God says, I'm going to be pleased with that. We know the Lord Jesus quoted this passage in Mark chapter 11. Let me read it to you. It says in verse 15 through 17, So they came to Jerusalem. And then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Imagine that. God going in there with like Jesus going in there with a, kind of like a, a whip of some sort, man. And just, man, throwing up the tables and the seats and just cleaning house. And And what did he do? What was his biblical uh backing it says in verse 16 and he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple because they were defiling the, the temple he taught and said to them is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of thieves and you guys know, you probably you studied it, that they were in there and they were just you know charging hand over fist and saying, hey, your sacrifice is not good enough, you've got to buy one of ours, exchanging the money and just jacking up the prices, and they were ripping off the people. There's a lot of people in the church today who see it as a money-making entity, and the Lord sees that. And he says, no, my church is supposed to be a place for the presence of God. Where people come in, and we get to talk to God, you know, and we do it sometimes as we 're worshiping, and sometimes I, I see you guys afterwards, and you know there's that aspect of us you know you know t- hearing God talk to us and then us talking to him and I mean this is supposed to be what we are, and not just for the the jews it's for all nations, and that's what was happening here with, with the Jews, unfortunately, and it can happen to the church, is we get caught up in all the other stuff, the religion of uh, whatever, the sacrifices that need to be, you know, offered, and, and you know that, that that external part of it, missing the Lamb that was right in their presence, and and we get caught up in those things, and then what ends up happening is the Gentiles or the non-believer that God just wants to save. We, we can't, we don't have that capacity to do that because we forgot it's a house of prayer for all nations. You know, I was talking to a brother this week and it was cool what God's been doing. Really neat man that God is using in my life. I thank God for him already. But you know, just the, his word of advice was something he actually heard from Pastor Rawl. He said, when you wake up in the morning, just, you know, roll out of bed onto your knees. Some people, I remember Jerry's grandparents, they wouldn't even roll out of bed yet. They would just lift up their hands first thing when they wake up in the morning. There's something about saying, God, you are first. You are first. And the first thing I'll do when I wake up in the morning is I will roll out of bed, get on my knees, and right away I'll start talking to you. Now, you might not be quite awake yet. I understand that. But even as you're there, you're like, okay, Lord, I'm not awake yet. I'm about to go get my coffee or whatever. But Lord, thank you for another day. And here we go. And then, you know, he was just encouraging me and something you guys have probably heard before. When you spend time with God, which is the first thing I believe you should do, don't take your phone. Don't let anyone or anything distract you. Because my house shall be called a house of prayer. It's not just this building, and it's not the temple. I mean, it is when we're gathered together. Praise God for that. But it's also just me, a house of prayer. I'm telling you this, it's not a secret. But for some reason, it is the most neglected discipline in the church your life of prayer. So I want to encourage you, talk to God. It's the wonderful privilege that we have. And if you don't know what to pray, start reading your Bible because there are so many prayers that you can literally pray. And then if you don't know what to pray, just go to Luke 11. There's the model prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's a model prayer. And then you just start praying each one of those things. You don't have to necessarily, you know, just say it verbatim, although you can. But they're principles as you go through. And so the Lord here, he just is, you know, sharing with us how God, you know, wants the Gentiles. He, he wants those eunuchs. He even mentions right here, it's interesting, in, in, in verse 7, their, their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, "Yet I will gather to Him others besides those who are gathered to Him." And so, I wonder if I could talk to you guys. We're almost we're we're almost there to get people's testimonies. We got the the we've got like um what would you call it? Like a recording room where there's a studio, kind of like a studio. God has been so good to us and we're almost there. But w- would you have considered yourself an outcast? And God gathered you. Oh, there's no way that person will get saved. I was listening to a study today. I went to Carriage Chapel Downey and David Rosales was talking about how he went to this crusade and there's this big old dude, six foot four, you know, tatted down. I mean... He just thought, there's just no way this guy's going to get saved. And it was just so cool. He said, when the altar call took place, um, the guy got up, and I guess he was wiping his, his eyes because he was crying, and he went forward, and he accepted the Lord. So he says, not just the outcasts of Israel. He mentions right here the others. I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. And Does anybody know who that is? The Gentiles, right? Jesus said the same thing in John ten sixteen. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so it's just so cool how God gathers the outcasts. You know, the First Corinthians one twenty six through twenty nine. It talks about how He gathers the the not many mighty or noble or you know the off scouring. That that's us. And what does he do? He does this beautiful work. And so we see next in verse nine that there was a way for some who selfishly lead. Look at what they do. It says, all you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. Now that might be in reference to demons that were going to devour people. And you guys know that happens, right? You guys know that demons, sometimes, man, they have a field day with people because they're not being led by the Lord. They're being led by people like this. Look at verse 10. His watchmen are blind. They're all ignorant. They're all dumb dogs. They, They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs, which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his own gain, from his own territory. Come, one says, I will bring wine and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. And and this is, you know, these horrible, selfish leader's, Anyone who's a leader, and even like a head of a home, but anyone who's a leader, they have to ask themselves, what, "What am I doing as a leader? Am I am I manipulating? Am I leading to get something, you know, to get what I want?" You know, some teachers believe that this is in reference to the government of Israel, kings, for example, and those within the administration you know, the elders, the human lords of the land. And that is is a very strong possibility. But but there are others who believe it's in reference to the spiritual leaders of the land. And as I was reading, I know a lot of them were talking about, this is the government, this is the government, this is the government. So I could be wrong. But but when I read it, I just think more along the lines of the spiritual leaders because of the fact that it it references uh, individuals like like watchmen and shepherds. You know, Ezekiel was referred to as a watchman in Ezekiel 3.17. And then again, in in chapter 33, he talked about the watchman, right, of the book. And, And so he speaks of the responsibility that watchmen have to warn the people if judgment is coming. Now now, you know, here we read about watchmen who don't warn. We read about dogs who don't bark. Imagine that. Have any of you guys ever had a dog that doesn't bark? I mean, all dogs bark, right? And from what I've seen. Now, some dogs bark too much. I had the I had the perfect dog. He barked perfectly. You know, he didn't bark when he shouldn't have barked, he barked when he should have. I don't know if you knew this or not, but dogs, they, they can hear frequencies that humans cannot hear. They can hear, uh, from what I understand, four times farther than what human beings can hear. So they hear something. Not only that, dogs, they have a sense. They can sense like, kind of like when something's not right. Like if you go up to a dog and you're afraid of it, you know, he'll bite you because he, he's like, why are they afraid of me? They must be have something up their sleeve, so I'm going to bite them. They they have that sense, right? And so they know when to bark. I'll never forget our dog Chip, man. I mean, one time he barked and you know he alerted my wife because he heard a noise that that wasn't right, and so she ended up seeing that our neighbors across the street were being broken into. So she called the police and there was a man in there. He could have been murdered. But the police arrived and they apprehended the bad guys. That all started, that rescue of life began because the dog barked. And we're living in a world now where some, you know, guys, some leaders, some shepherds, some watchmen, not watching, they're mute. They can't, they can't bark. They can't warn. You know, you got someone, and again, the Lord knows, you know, they have the Joel Osteen mentality that says, well, I'm not called to talk about sin. I mean, then how is someone going to get saved, really? I mean, there has to be the conviction. There has to be the teaching of the full counsel of God. If we don't do that, and I know sometimes it's hard to take, you know, because sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's more difficult, whatever. You're going through the whole thing. But but the reason why we have to do this is because we have to be faithful watchmen and shepherds. And so um, these guys were lazy leaders, and there's a lot of them out there who they only are in it for the paycheck. Uh, looking out for themselves. Believe it or not, there are many, many, many pastors and priests who are drunks. There are many. You know, I remember one time my wife and I went to a wedding and the guy who performed the wedding, he was he was blastado. He was drunk like crazy, dancing and just barely making it. And And that's their life. So the Lord sees this. God, help us to be You know, leaders like like Jesus, you know, you warn people when you need to, you bark when you need to, you shepherd, you feed, you love. Remember that God's given us that responsibility. Next is a warning to those who lust after idols. In verse 1 of chapter 57, it says, The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous... Is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. It's an interesting section, basically saying that there are those times that God might take someone home and they might pass away to spare them a coming judgment. And so he's saying no one considers, no one really sees that. Maybe even that no one cares. You know, in one sense, that's the principle of the rapture, how God's going to take us out before the judgment happens. And so you wonder, well, why would God judge? You know, why would God ever have this vow of vengeance? And he goes on in verse 3, But but come here, you, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot, whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood, in inflaming yourselves or burning with lust, with gods under every green tree, slaying the children? Notice, slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion they they are your lot even to them you have poured a drink offering you have offered a grain offering god says should i receive comfort in these and and again there's a lot here we don't have time to really dig in too deep but just know this that unfortunately god is going to judge because of the idolatry that's taking place and as I mentioned earlier, a lot of this idolatry was connected to sexual immorality. And I just, I beg of you, stay pure. Guys, girls, you know, guard your hearts. I know it's difficult for men nowadays, probably, you know, because there's a lot of stuff that we even see on our phone. And you might think it's no big deal. You know, I just kind of look, she's beautiful. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to check out the menu. I won't place an order type of thing. There are some guys who who have that mentality. I remember one pastor, he said, it's okay to look at her. She's a beautiful creation of God. And, And you know what? I disagree. Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. So you might see someone. Okay, cool. Then your eyes bounce and you bring them back to where they belong. Because I'm telling you this, it's idolatry. God's first, and we—he deserves that—that that purity. You know what happens here is the sexual temptation. They're worshiping these gods that allow, you know, the sexual perversity. People don't realize that that's idolatry because anytime you put yourself or any other cultural teaching or morality before the Bible, before what God says then you're actually committing idolatry, adultery, and next thing you know, they're pregnant. And so what do you do with the kid? Right there, it says slaying the children. Nothing new under the sun. The things that we see going on today, even the, the whole LGBTQ+, all that kind of stuff, that's not new. You know, that's why God judged Canaan. And Israel came in, nothing new, same demons. And so what God is saying right here is this is why I I have to judge. Look what they're doing to the children. Verse 7, it says, they're doing this openly and publicly and shamelessly, but they're also doing it privately. Verse 7, on a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed And even there you went up to offer sacrifice and behind the doorposts and their posts you set up your remembrance for you have uncovered yourself to those other than me and gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them and you have loved their bed where you saw their nudity. You went to the king and in the Hebrew language is in reference to Molech. With ointment and increased your perfumes, and you sent your messengers far off, and even descended to Sheol. Now this is demon stuff. You are wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. And what he's saying there in verse ten is hard to understand in the New King James, but basically he's saying is they were faithful in their search for these false gods. The New Living Translation says it this way, you grew weary in your search, but you never gave up. Desire gave you renewed strength and you did not grow weary. That's how they were pursuing their gods. This is how we should pursue our God, but this is the passion they had. There was no fear of God because of his love and long suffering. Look at verse 11. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to your your heart? Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? You know, this is why the scriptures are so important. You might be here and you're like, man, I've been doing it for, for 30 years. And God never God, God never judged me. But when you read the Bible, that's when you learn God does judge sin. I mean, you can read about someone like Nadab and Abihu who offered profane fire to God. Uh, they were drinking, and they didn't do it according to the scriptures. Or you might look at Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it's there for us to learn. Just because God didn't judge them immediately, it, it should, the, those scriptures... They bring out the fear of God in my life. Ananias and Sapphira, it was a couple that were hypocrites in the church and God killed them. God killed Nadab and Abihu. God killed Korah. God killed Achan. And and those are there to put the fear of God inside of me. I don't need him to do it to me. I I even sometimes I tell the Lord, Lord, just just your word. The, The fear of the Lord is a phrase found 250 times in the Bible. You know, and sometimes people, they don't fear God because God's never flattened them. God's never dealt with them the way that we deal with a bug. We step on it. That's what we deserve. God doesn't do that to us. But don't let that make you an individual who doesn't fear God. This is what they were doing. You know, we don't have time, but I encourage you later. You read 1 Corinthians 10. 1 through 12, and it's just amazing how God said, I wrote all this down so that you would take these things to heart. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. All those guys in the wilderness, God was not well pleased with them, and their bodies were scattered. So it's a lesson. Verse 12, God says, I will declare your your righteousness and your works for they will not profit you. In other words, God says, I will expose your so-called good deeds, and I just want you to know in advance that none of them are going to help you. Like, hey, God, but yeah, I I know I used to do that stuff, but hey, I served at church. Hey, God, I read my Bible. Hey, God, I prayed. Hey, I helped, helped that lady cross the street. And God is just saying, yeah, but you always did it for yourself. See, we have to be so careful. Our our righteousness, Isaiah 64, 6, is like filthy rags. That's the best that we can do. And so their idolatry would be futile. You know, when you cry out, it says in verse 13, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain and there's something about that that that's millennial kingdom heaven presence of god it's it's just so beautiful you know people who are worshiping money worshiping you know mammon imagine one day when they realize that mammon cannot help them in any way it can't give a peace it can't fill the void it can't get me to heaven that's why our priority has to be trusting in the lord Look what we close with. It's a woo to those who need to return. And so he says in verse 14, and one shall say, Heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. Something we read in the New Testament. They said, Hey, clear the path, get it ready, because you know there's going to be some traveling taking place here. God says, Rebuild the road, clear away the rocks and stones, so that my people can return from captivity. Listen, just in case there's anyone here who you need to come back to God. You need to come back to, don't let anything get in the way. He loves you. Just come. You know, he says in verse 15, for for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. Think about that. Whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You know, it's, it's amazing when you, and again, we don't have time, but just when you stop and you think about how awesome God is, the lofty one who inhabits eternity, I mean, he feels there's a doctrine of God. It's called the immensity of God where he's everywhere in all this galaxy and beyond in his fullness. Think about that. And all time, and there's no end to time. So he's there in all eternity. But he says that this God, he lives with us. The, The one who's humble, the one who's contrite. And contrite is in reference to someone who is genuinely repentant. God says, I live with that one who is contrite and humble in spirit. And and the humility is, I know I need Jesus. I know that. I wonder if, I, I love LeBron James. I don't know LeBron James, but I wonder if he really knows that. Or Stephen Curry, or whoever it is, you know, these guys that we think of, these movie actors that for whatever reason we esteem, are they humble enough to genuinely acknowledge that they need Jesus? You know, this is what he's saying, the the humble, the the contrite. And what I will do is I will revive them. I will dwell in the high I I dwell in the high holy place with him who's a contrite, humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Imagine if you could, like a person, their spirit is dead. Or maybe you can, you know, visualize their heart's not beating. And then the Lord says, all they do is they return to me. They humble themselves. And God says, I I revive them. Here's verse 16, for I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. If God was angry with everyone forever, then we would be history. <laughs> we would all pass away. For For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and I struck him. I hid and was angry and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. And God says, I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. It's kind of like a new language for mourners. And God says, peace, peace to him, to her who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. You know, sometimes what's mess, what's going on is if somebody needs God to heal them. I heard a quote this week, Al- Alexander McLaren. He said, Jesus Christ has the only hand in all the universe that can touch a broken, bleeding heart without hurting it and in the process heal it. I- I'm telling you this, you know, you got to go to Jesus. You not just go to church. Not just go to your desk and read your Bible. Not just go to your prayer closet. Make sure you go to him. But it says in verse 20, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. God says, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You know, we see that back in Isaiah 48, 22, the, the verse Isaiah twenty six three will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on him. So, you know it's cool when you're a Christian and you have the Bible in your heart, and you know you have this peace. Um, I know in whom I have believed. I'm a sinner saved by grace, and when He gives you that peace, you're 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 the righteous. It's just a beautiful place to be. So as I was going through this, I was thinking about the temptation of idols because that's what messed Israel up. If we keep God first, like if we wake up in the morning and roll out of our bed and just say, God, you're first, we're going to be okay. And I was thinking about the one apostle that we talked about on Sunday who loved the Lord and who knew God loved him. How did he end his epistle? You guys remember? How did he end his letter 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, he says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's really as simple as that.